Tandem Investment Advisors present Tandem Talk, featuring John Carew, Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson. February 2021. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Tandem Talk. I'm John Carew. I'm here with our investment team, Billy Little. Billy, say hello. Hello. Jordan Watson. Hey, how's it going? And Ben Carew. How's it going? We are being supervised by our Director of Communications, Elaine Natoli. Hello. And we're going to talk all things tandem, markets, and whatever else is going on in the world. Sit back and give us a listen. We hope you enjoy. So we have not been with you in this format since November. A lot has happened in the world, and uh, I think I'm just going to roll this out to the middle of the table and see who jumps on it first. What's new, everybody? What have we experienced, missed, or has happened since last November? Well, we have a new president. I missed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, We've got a market that has seemingly gone up in lockstep with very little volatility since the uh, since the election the market's up 15 20 percent since the last time we spoke more recently since the beginning of the year uh, you've seen yields come up dramatically um, mostly on the long end with the 30-year yield of 50 basis points while the two-year yield is actually flat Um, inflation expectations have come up um, in Earnings, most importantly, have also have also come up. The end of last year, S and P earnings for 2021 were estimated to be 165 dollars, give or take. Um, now it's sitting at 172 dollars. Um, so it's so up from 118 this year, right? According to facts, that 2020 was 138. Oh. S&P might be a little bit different. On yeah, how they, I, how I they just checked it, the but, S&P website and they said 118. Um, okay, we'll go with FactSet. 138 for FactSet 2020. And just as... And what for 2021? 172 as of today. I'm taking the under on that. Anybody else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And to give you a frame of reference, 2019 FactSet, we finished the year at, at roughly 160. So we are looking to be roughly at the end of this year, back to where we ended 2019, right? Give or take a couple percent. And what's um, the market up in that the time? The market is up during that time 20%, hmm. 3,200 to 3,900 today. Um, so that's, that's some serious multiple expansion during that time. So what you just said in there that, that I wrote down, because I think it's interesting and maybe less talked about, is the spreads are widening. Now, that's not how you said it, but you talked mm-hmm. about the 10-year or the long bond yes. while the two-year is flattish. Mm-hmm. You know, it used to be that we always said the bond market is smart and the stock market is foolish. Is the bond market right? And if it's right, what is it telling us? I think that uh, some of the downward pressure on the short end of the curve really has to do with all of the stimulus that we're seeing. And some of the actions coming out of downward pressure in the sense that it's staying flat when Correct. everything else is rising. Correct. Okay. Correct. The long end of the curve, I would say, is reacting more to the potential for inflation, whereas the short end is really being tamped down by the action of the Fed and the action of the Treasury. The end of the curve they can control still, right. we hope. And there's even talk of the short end going negative. The Treasury Department is about to release 
so much cash back to the Federal Reserve that the Federal Reserve's balance sheet will be up over 50% from now until the end of June. Uh, so there's about to be some June? serious liquidity that is hitting the Federal Reserve right now to the point where there's even some people discussing whether or not the Fed is going to hike between now and then just to give money markets room. Inflation is, or the fear of, is what we're assigning to the reason that uh, the 30-year and the 10-year are rising. I presume the five-year is rising as well. I just a little bit less. don't know the current. Right. Okay, so is this inflation in financial assets like QE was designed to create? Or is this inflation like I lived through in the 70s where the day of the week that you could get gas depended on your license plate number? We're definitely not there yet, but it's clearly inflation in financial assets. But it's also, you're seeing inflation in commodities, which is the throughput to a lot of goods that's we will see eventually once it gets through the supply chain. Right. So you're not seeing it. You predicted that a year ago. And it's still getting through that supply chain. Right. It's still <laughs> no, I but... meant you were right. I meant you were right. Oh, thank I, you. Yeah, I, I didn't mean stop clock is right twice a day. I meant you were in front of that. You got it right. But what you are seeing, you don't have commodity inflation and all of a sudden goods inflation. It has to work itself through the system. That could take a while. We saw it nine months ago, starting to that input pressure come. You're still seeing it. Lumber, I just saw the other day, I think was over $1,000 per contract or whatever, however lumber is priced, which is absolutely insane because I think that's twice as much that was two years ago when people were talking about it. But anyway, so what what you're seeing is you're seeing it flow from commodities, food inflation is up significantly. But what happens when it gets to the final product and then out to consumers is the question, I think. In a lot of reports that, company reports that I've read in some of their earnings costs, they have yet to pass that along, to pass that, that cost on. Would it be markets. fair to say that this is a PPI event so far and not a CPI event? Absolutely. Companies like Kraft Heinz, ConAgra recently warned about price increases uh, that I think we will eventually see flow through to the consumer. They'll see those price Mm -hmm. increases on the grocery store shelf, and then you'll see that kind of flow through as well. I think that you'll probably also start seeing it to flow through uh, because consumers have more money right now. Personal spending in households that make under 60K is up 20% year over year. That's crazy. Uh, Clearly... With all the stimulus that is taking place. So does place. purchasing GameStop count in spending? <laughs> <laughs> I just think that uh, there's enough stimulus right now in place that people are able to sustain currently some of their spending. And so some of the pricing could get passed on in the short term as a result of that. So I want to ask this question. Is the CPI actually going to indicate that we have inflation? Or does it just miss the mark? I think it just miss, misses the mark. I mean, Billy, you sent... I have a lot of thoughts about that, <laughs> but I don't think we need to, to go deep, in, deep into my head about CPI. Um, I don't think it will eventually capture what inflation is. And I don't think it's captured for many years now what inflation really is. 
I can tell you everything that I spend money on, whether it be health insurance, home insurance, the major ticket items, they have gone up every year, maybe even 10% every year. Health insurance sure has. Um, That'd be a good year. Yeah. So, and I get the the talk about technology and that be disinflationary and it it has. I just bought a TV for $199. <laughs> um, but I'm not buying TVs every day or every month. Um, I am paying for health insurance every month. Yeah. So I haven't thought that CPI actually captures what what true inflation is. Um, I've got many thoughts behind why that is, but... Just out of curiosity, CPI is measured by a basket of goods and services, right? Correct. How often does that basket change? Well, they change it every January. Do they? Yes. They change is it the reflective of anything? I mean, is it, is it relevant? Well, are, are TVs and cell phones in there? I mean, does the, does the new iPhone costing $1,500 or whatever it is factor into CPI? It's all in there, but what is extremely interesting, and I, I just found this out, is so much of the, the way that CPI is now calculated, it's a cost of living versus what used to be a cost of goods index. And, the, and one way that they capture it now is CPI doesn't take into consideration when you trade down to something. So... I would say in the past 10 years or so, the private label business has expanded immensely. So instead of buying those Clorox wipes, you might buy Publix's brand of Clorox wipes. Well, CPI, if they both change 10% in a year, but you you were buying Clorox wipes before, and now you've traded down, it captures that as no inflation. Because oh, you've traded down. Got it. So it, it's CPI adjusts for consumer behavior. Fascinating. I believe that's one reason why it's consistently undershoots everything because we've constantly been trading down in everything. I think, though, even if CPI is being measured inaccurately, which there's certainly a lot of debate around that, and I think all your points are valid about that, but even if it's measured inaccurately, I still think you'll see upward pressure on it. Um, you're already seeing price indexes rise, and in, I think – in the eurozone, they had the uh, the largest increase in over like five years. So there definitely are inflationary pressures that are being captured by central banks around the world. And so it just sort of goes to your point: if they're measuring it inaccurately, what is inflation actually doing? Did we ever determine if the bond market is still smarter than the stock market, or did we just leave that? Considering t- what action we saw over the past few weeks in the in the stock market, um, yeah, I think the bond market still <laughs> probably. So that's a great transition, what you just said. New topic, just for fun, let's make a bullish case for why everything is pointing in the upward direction. I can throw a couple points out there. I think that there's a couple pretty clear points. One, the end is in sight with COVID. Vaccines are rolling out. Hopefully consumer spending, it has already picked up. It will continue to pick up as people return to normal. That's obviously bullish. Uh, and just the sheer amount of stimulus out there, people are spending money like crazy. That's obviously bullish. So I think that there are points that are valid to the to the bull case out there right now. Can anybody at this table just quantify stimulus? We have fiscal and monetary. And for the listener, fiscal is legislative. It is passed by Congress 
or executive order, and monetary is the work of the Federal Reserve. Combined, we are looking at a mind-boggling level of stimulus. I think it exceeds or approaches, I should say, 50% of this country's total GNP, but who can quantify it? Coming out of the financial crisis, what we saw was a massive amount of monetary stimulus. Monetary policy was basically the only policy that was Well, there was no fiscal policy. The federal government abdicated. Exactly. And so you had QE, and you saw asset price inflation over the past decade. What we have seen since uh, COVID really started is we have seen the same playbook get rolled out this time around, but on a massive scale. So there's a massive amount of uh, stimulus coming from central banks around the world in the form of monetary policy. But what you have also seen this time is a ridiculous amount, ridiculous, not the right word, but a massive amount of fiscal stimulus. I think that fiscal stimulus is approaching 25% of GDP. I mean, they are pouring money back to people right now. So how much have we already approved in this country alone in in stimulus by the federal government? Are we over $4 trillion yet? I think we're close to $4 trillion now. With $1.9 on the with table? With So if that passes, we're go. at 6-ish? Correct. And what has the Fed done? Uh, the Fed's balance sheet is now $7.5 trillion. It's So that's seven, another three? Right, yeah. Cause right, we were, we were at 4.5? Before COVID, but yeah. So their balance sheet alone is 35% of U.S. GDP, and it's hitting new highs every week. This is a 20 to $25 trillion economy? Correct. And in the last... 11 months, we've seen nine mm-hmm. trillion. Nine trillion? Okay, so back to the bullish case. I, 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 think, <laughs> I think we've just made the bullish case. Um, there's money everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but so let's continue with the bullish case. Yeah, to Ben's point, I mean, we are seeing COVID cases collapsing across the country. I think hospitalizations are down 40 days in a row. There were some hiccups in the vaccine rollout initially, but it's been ironed out. And uh, it looks like at least right now, the market is pricing in a return to normalcy by the end of this year. The GOAT trade is one that's been quoted a lot, the go out and travel trade. You're seeing airline stocks, cruise um, cruise stocks, stocks like Disney, some of the parks um, are soaring on that news. So, you know, if we do return to normal... Well, Disney's the- soaring because the littles yes. were just there. <laughs> <laughs> if you, they if- should be paying a dividend. <laughs> If we do return to normal at the back half of the year, you know, consumers' pockets are full with stimulus and they're ready to spend and they're ready to go out and travel. So that's quite bullish. And everything that you guys have talked about also points to an economic resurgence or further recovery. I think just on the stock side, if we do see inflation, stocks, equities have historically been kind of some inflation protection as an asset class. So I, I do think if, if we are seeing pickup in inflation, yeah, will that ripple through and hurt equities initially because interest rates will rise and for so long, a lot of this recovery or this the market recovery has been based on low interest rates, of, of course. But eventually equities should go just go up in price just as an inflation hedge. So sort of tongue-in-cheek, but sort of serious too, can rates really rise? I mean, we've seen this before, right? Pre-COVID, the Federal Reserve started to raise interest rates and the market threw up on itself. The economy revolted. It just 
didn't take. And then we hit COVID. And of course, we immediately started rescuing everything under the sun because we can't fail and we can't have a recession anymore. The business cycle is not tolerated by our leaders. So kind of seriously, the bond market says interest rates should go higher because we're going to have inflation. And then we go into a recession and we know what the playbook is. So can we really have higher rates? I don't know that we I don't know that we can. I think the amount of debt that's around the world can afford higher inflation rates. So I, I don't I don't think that we can afford higher interest rates. We'll see or see higher interest rates. And just to kind of come full circle with the CPI, I don't think CPI, which is used in so many government calculations for payments of Social Security and Medicare payments, we that can broke. that can go. That is part of my going down the rabbit hole is is you cannot have that number go that much higher. The government can't afford that number to go that much higher. So you have to keep that tamped down. You have to keep interest rates tamped down. See, I do think that the Fed is in a bit of an interesting position because I think that if we do see inflation, which is why it's so talked about right now, not just in here, but you see it getting talked about everywhere. But I think that if the Fed is faced with inflation, they will have to start rising into it. And I think that that is, we talk about the bullish case, but if you want to talk about the bearish case, I think that's where it comes from. I think that the Fed could be forced into action sooner rather than later. I mean, the Fed futures market is already pricing in a hike. They're over, I think it's a 70% chance that they hike by the end of 2022. This year alone, 15% chance of a hike. That doesn't sound like much, but it was at zero a month ago. So clearly the market is starting to price in Fed action, which as you brought up, John, does sometimes throw a wrench in the market system. And I think that that is really why you have to keep an eye on inflation, not just rising prices. Billy, you're exactly right. Equities typically are a hedge for that. But if the Fed is forced to act, that's where things could get dicier. So you just threw out the words, I wasn't ready to hear, bearish case scenario. And I don't want to I don't want to go down that path yet. Um, we're talking about the bullish case scenario. I think we've all pretty much agreed that most signs point to higher. As my friend the caddy, William Lanier, would say, I'm sitting on G waiting for O. I mean, we are primed. And before we go to what makes us cautious or concerned, I want to give just a little bit of a monologue and see how you guys respond to it. And then we're going to go to reasons to be cautious. So at Tandem, we don't follow this notion of all in or all out. We are risk takers. At least I believe we are risk takers, even if we do not have a reputation as being risk takers. Ask the people who were unnerved by our buying activity in March, 11 months ago. But we are risk takers when we believe the odds favor taking risk. And we become more cautious when we believe the odds are more challenging. So we're not out of the market. We're not in, we're in the market. We're in the market at all times. We just sort of control the level of risk we are exposing our clients to. So with that backdrop, I was asked the other day, and I think I shared this with Ben, and I want to get your answers to this. A great friend of Tandem's, an advisor, just made the comment in passing, I bet markets like this are challenging for your process. A fair comment. I'm sure many listeners perceive that. My answer to that was, if I recall, now this was two days ago, which is stretching my ability to recall, but my answer to that was, it really depends on your perspective. If you believe that the S&P at 3,900 will never see this level again because it's only going higher, 
then I would imagine our process would frustrate you. But we don't find our process frustrating, A, because nobody sent me the memo that we're never seeing 3,900 again. So whether we're 100% invested or 50% invested or 75% invested, doesn't matter because we're not blasting off to the moon never to see this level again, even if it's a year from now that we see this level again, what difference will it have ultimately made? But it's so much easier, in my view, for Tandem to follow a discipline and a process that is just math rather than guessing or hoping or intuiting. Is that a word? Intuiting? (laughs) If not, it is right now. (laughs) It is now. Um, What the market's next move may be. So I do not find this time challenging at all. I find this time much more satisfying to have a discipline like ours than to try to guess. So that's how I answered. As we roll into reasons to be cautious, how would you have answered this perfectly reasonable question of, or statement of, I bet this environment is challenging for your process? I don't know that the process is, it's challenging per se. I The process is what the process is. I mean, we come in and the discipline is what it is. And we don't come into the office every morning with some preconceived outcome of what that day should be um, or where the portfolio should be positioned. You take what the process and what the disciplines give you. So I think, and maybe this is, have done this long enough and grown up a little bit more and having a little bit more patience. I think several years ago, 10 years ago, there would probably be frustration on my part. Oh, we can't do this. We can't do that. But when you've, when you've got a process and a discipline that is so rock solid as ours, you just do the process and whatever comes from it, comes from it. And if that is 25% cash today, great. That's 25% cash today. We're still 75% invested. If that is a month from now and the market is down like it was last year, 35% in the course of three weeks, and now all of a sudden we're fully invested or have 5% cash, well, great, that's fine too. Um, I, I don't know that it's as so, so much as challenging um, to me, so to speak. Billy, I think that you're exactly right. The, the process is the process, like you said, and it's no more challenging today than it was in March because it is what it is. Um, it's a process that we follow. So what goes on around you is irrelevant. And we talk about this often on these. We're sitting here talking about the markets and what yields are doing and what inflation is doing. And at the end of the day, none of that even really matters to our process uh, because everything depends on our companies. So is this a challenging environment? No, we have great companies that we really like. We wish we had more to buy in our portfolio, but the opportunity just isn't there right now. So I don't think that it's ever any or any more or any less challenging. It just is what it is, exactly like Mm -hmm. you said. Well said. All right, slight change of topic. Actually, not a change, but a transition to what we said earlier. Um, And that is reasons to be cautious. So let me just start by acknowledging an old adage that says that if you are the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. 
and I'm here to announce to our listeners that I am in the right room. I am surrounded <laughs> by two CFAs and somebody sitting for level three of the CFA in May, and I have no initials after my name, period. But with that, I want to get to what you guys see that probably doesn't keep you up at night, but they would just give you pause, right? But, but I just want to say what gives me pause. Y'all's answers are going to be way smarter. I never trust markets where it's obvious, that the outcome is obvious and everyone is on the same side. It's like if you're on a boat and everybody's on the same side, the boat can only lean so far to that side and it's perfect. If you're on a sailboat and you got that lean, you are heeled over and you are flying. But once you go too far, it does not end well. So I just look out there and I see it is just so perfect and everybody sees that it is so perfect and inflows into passive strategies are just killing it and it is so good, it can't be. Now, that's just a gut reaction to, to why we should be cautious. You guys give me some concrete reasons as to, as to why caution might be warranted. Or if you don't think it's warranted, then say so. I think it's always warranted, especially when you're dealing with risk assets, which makes up our portfolio. But I think I'm in your camp, John, where the biggest, I would say, overhang or maybe my worry is where it's such high valuations in the market today that the valuations don't necessarily worry me in of, in of itself. It's the unknown that comes out, comes blindsides you. And that's where you're at your biggest, you have your biggest risk is when valuations are the highest and you have room to fall. I think the worry is, like you said, everyone seems to be pretty complacent as far as equity markets go, pretty bulled up. And I, I think the the biggest threat is is the unknown. I don't think it comes from COVID or a COVID resurgence. I don't know. I have I don't know what it is. I have no idea. And that's that is always the biggest threat is you don't know what it is. Yeah. I think we spent uh time already laying out a great bull case. But I think a lot of the things that we were discussing earlier have also already been priced in. John, you said it earlier that when that we're risk takers when the odds are in our favor. And I think that given the 11 months that we have seen where markets are up 70-75% since their March lows, that's unheard of. I mean, that that quick of a turnaround is truly unheard of. You don't think the next 11 months are going to look like that? No, if I had to guess, I don't think the next 11 months are going to be up 70 to 75%. But what you see a lot of the time is just sort of looking back at market history some, and it can always be proven wrong, but what you've seen is when you have outsized gains like this in such a short period of time. The most recent examples happened in 2010, coming out of the financial crisis. What did you see in 11? You saw a really choppy year. Coming out of the tech bubble, you had a great 2004, 2005, markets were pretty flat and choppy. You had a great 97, 98, and then you had a 20% drawdown in late 98. And so you see these great periods are often followed by choppiness. And so I don't think that it has to be some huge bearish case where markets are down like they were in March. I don't think that has to be the case at all. I think that markets could easily just trade sideways from here. We've priced in a lot of good things 
and the market probably needs that next bout of good news to take that next leg higher. Um, so I think that we could just as easily just trade sideways, much like we did in 14, 15, and 16. But yeah, I think that we pulled a lot of those gains forward just in the last 11 months alone. Jordan, did you have something to say? Yeah, to Ben's point, I think you know we saw the market overshoot where the real economy was and the market recovered substantially faster than the economy. So maybe it's time now that the economy will close that gap and recover and, and markets may trade sideways. A few things, I just have a few points on the bear case. I mean, you're seeing euphoria levels at near tech bubble highs. I don't know the entire uh, Templeton saying, but what is it? Markets die of euphoria. So you're seeing euphoria levels at record highs. Option volumes are at record levels, which maybe is why the VIX in volatility remains historically elevated. To your point for positioning, I mean, margin debt is up 60% since March. So we're seeing some excess in terms of leverage in the system. And an interesting point, Lizanne uh, Saunders tweeted the other day that I thought was interesting. The percent of U.S. companies with positive earnings um, is at a record low. And this is exacerbated by the pandemic, but this has been a downtrend for 15 years. Um, I think 40% of all U.S. companies now have positive EPS. So a minority of companies are profitable. So um, I'm pretty sure when Ben sat down to my right, he had a legal pad in front of him that was largely blank. And over the course of this meeting, as I look over to my right, it just is fuller and fuller. And he is now scribbling on the bottom line of his legal pad. Have we said so many things that caused you to think? Or was it so spellbinding that you had to take notes? I had to take notes. (laughs) He's our scribe. (laughs) All right. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground. So I would like to just sort of throw out sort of a, a what's next and what have we left out catch-all basket. Numerous studies have pointed out that over time, a significant portion, I don't recall the proportion, but but let's say 40%, give or take, of total stock market returns have come from the contribution of the dividend. Um, If you owned high-yielding stocks for the last 25 years, you benefited because the wind was at your back, interest rates were declining. And I mean, actually declining, not just low, but declining from a very high level to a very low level. And so, as you all listeners, good listeners know, prices and interest rates move in opposite directions. So as interest rates are declining, prices of those interest producing things are rising. So this income Dividend income, which we are not, strategy, um, worked very well. The MLPs were great. The utilities were great. Banks were great. Staples. Staples were great. So here we are in a, in a flat rate to possibly rising rate environment. We have, we have debated that without conclusion. But basically, interest rates are zero, which means dividends contribution to total return since the financial crisis has really been suppressed because the dividend yield just hasn't been there. Now, of course, that doesn't apply to us because our dividend payout is rising at a near double-digit rate annually. Plug over with, we've talked about borrowing future returns. We've talked about maybe trading flat. We don't need to correct. But it is my opinion 
that it's never different this time, and that dividend yields will again become a meaningful contributor to total return. If we are in a zero to minuscule interest rate environment, does that mean dividends are the positive contributor to return? How does that play out and what is next? And anywhere else you wanna go with this conversation as we wind it down here in the closing minutes. I said it all, didn't I? I left the room speechless. (laughs) As far as dividends go, um, and dividends being the positive contributor to the total return, absolutely. I think that's that's the case, and it's it's where we could be going. But I think on top of that, and you you briefly mentioned it, as far as the growth of the income in our portfolio, I think that's going to be the most important factor, especially if you get into a period of if you if you do have inflation. And we said how we don't think that we could have higher rates, but what if you did have higher rates? You know, at the end of the day, you're, when we talk about higher rates, the 10-year is at 135. Well, higher rates could be two, but that 2% is still a fixed income at 2%. And so any, anywhere you can get actual dividend growth in maybe a, a dividend yield that even if it's 1%, but if it grows 10% a year, that's going to be a huge factor, I think, going into the future is that is the ability for companies to increase their income to shareholders because, because we're coming off of such a low yield level that even if we do enter a, a higher interest rate regime, we're still at a pretty low level. It's not like we're going to... on the 10-year or 10% on the 10-year, and that is now the substitute for for equities. I I don't think we're anywhere close to that. So I do think the growth aspect of dividends is going to become equally as important, if not most important, when you're actually factoring in that yield side of total return. Let's make it clear to the listener. If you are focused on yield and you find yourself in either an inflationary or a rising rate environment, or both, that is a losing proposition. Your principal will erode and your yield will buy less in an inflationary environment. I was always taught that dividend growth, not dividend yield, was the key to investing success in equities. Any thoughts about what we might see, anything we've left out, anything we want to talk about as we enter free agency in the NFL or... (laughs) college basketball playoffs or anything else anything on anybody's mind i think uh the last thing i'd sort of say about what's next and billy you've definitely spent time talking about it here within your pieces uh we've talked about market structure some and notes from the trading desk and so what i just sort of think what's next is what we've seen and that's a market that's gotten increasingly fast over the past decade the bursting of the tech bubble took a couple years to unwind the real nasty part of the financial crisis took, what, half a year to really get going, October to March. And even the start of that was 18 months. Right. The pandemic, record speeds we fell in. We recovered at record speeds. In August, the NASDAQ fell at, or September, NASDAQ fell at a record speed. Markets are getting faster. 
to both sides. They are going up faster and they are falling more quickly. So in terms of what's next, I don't really think that the market structure has changed significantly. And I would just expect more of that to happen. Quicker falls and quicker recoveries too. And that's when a discipline matters. Not making the wrong decision at the wrong time. Because if you had sold early or sold at a poor time in the depths of the tech bubble, you had time to get back in and you didn't miss that rally. If you sold on March 23rd and you were out of the market for a month or two, you missed some of the best days. Oh, if you were out of the market for two weeks, you missed a 30% recovery. Exactly. And so Ben, you wrote this. I think it was you. For the 20-year window from 97 to 2017, the S&P had an annualized rate of return of 7.2%, which is absolutely amazing considering we had two 50% retracements. Mm -hmm. If you missed the 10 best days in the market, your return went from 7.2 to 3.5. If you missed the 50 best days, and let's be honest, most investors that missed the 10 best days missed way more than 10, (laughs) right? right? They were out. Yeah. The return on the S&P went from plus 7.2 to minus 4.5 for missing 50 days. The S&P fell from February the 19th to March the 23rd last year, 34%. It bottomed on March 23rd. On March 24th, anybody at this table know what the S&P was up? Like 10% or something? 10%. Like that. 9.8. Yeah. If the pandemic scared you and you got out of the market, I'm pretty sure you missed March 24th. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So the important thing is here for our listeners is to stay invested, but you don't have to be fully at risk when the odds are not in your favor, but you need to be in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Especially as I think, and Billy, I think that you agree that you're just going to continue to see more of that. And discipline, John, you said it perfectly. Discipline is what matters in an environment like that. You can't make the wrong decision at the wrong time. Well, I think we have bored our audience long enough. (laughs) I will tell you, listeners, that if you have a quarter of as much enjoyment in listening to this as we have in doing this, then it was worthwhile for us. We love doing this. We're sorry that it's only every three months. We just don't have anything intelligent to say more frequently than that. I would encourage you to please listen to our recorded publications. The Voice of Tandem, Margie White, who is also the producer of this podcast, does an outstanding job recording observations, notes from the trading desk, and the Tandem Report. I assume if you're listening to this, you prefer to consume by listening, so they're all out there. But if you're throwing us a curveball and you prefer reading, those publications are all available in the printed form on our website as well. I would like to thank my cohorts here, Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson. I'd like to give a huge tip of the cap to Elaine Natoli for making this happen. I think it is just a wonderful way for our views to get out there, for you to hear and share with your audience, your clients, your friends, whatever. Feel free to send us ideas or feedback. We love hearing from all of you. We thank you for your time. It is a gift that we hope we have delivered on. And until the next time, we wish you well. Tandem Talk features John Carew, Billy Little, Ben Carew, 
and Jordan Watson. Directed by Elaine Natoli. Narrated, edited, and produced by Margaret White. With music written and performed by Lauren Crepenzano. Nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security, nor construed as financial or investment advice. Tandem Investment Advisors, Inc. does not represent that the securities, products, or services discussed on this podcast are suitable for any particular investor. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consult your financial advisor before making any investment decisions. All past portfolio purchases and sales are available upon request.